Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. We've done over 660 of them now. If this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones or other ones, go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. I also encourage you to subscribe to the YouTube channel. I'm hoping we'll hit 100,000 subscribers this year. Not that it makes a huge difference or anything, but we're close. It would be fun just to hit that mark. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, batgap.com, and there's also a page explaining some alternatives to PayPal. My guest today is Brian Thomas Swim. Brian did his doctoral work in gravitational dynamics in the Department of Mathematics at the University of Oregon. From the publication of The Universe is a Green Dragon, which was his first book, to the Emmy Award-winning PBS documentary, The Journey of the Universe, Brian has articulated the cosmology of a creative universe, one in which human intelligence plays an essential role. For three decades as a professor in the Philosophy, Cosmology, and Consciousness program at the California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, he taught evolutionary cosmology to graduate students in the humanities. Currently, he is the director of the third story of the universe at the Human Energy Project, a nonprofit public benefit organization. And I must say that ever since I first heard about Brian some years ago, I was really excited to have him on BatGap, and I'm really happy that we are finally doing it. And I just spent the last week, 18, 20 hours binging on everything I could get my hands on that Brian has done. His book, his new book, Cosmogenesis. There's a lot of great little videos on the Human Energy Project YouTube channel, which I'll provide a link to on his BatGap page. And there are also a lot of talks that he has given, which you can find on YouTube if you just uh, search for his name. Anyway, thanks, Brian. It's marvelous to finally connect with you. Great to be here, Rick. Tell us what a cosmologist is. Yeah. It's a word that has two separate meanings, really. In science, it's the investigation of the origin and development of the universe. And the great excitement of, of the 20th century is to have the confidence to say something about the birth of the universe from a physical standpoint. That's what a cosmologist is in the world of science. But in the humanities, it has a different, <laughs> different meaning. It, a cosmologist is someone who may speak of the birth and the development of the universe, but includes another really important part, the human role in the universe. So this is, this is a, something that scientists um, don't pursue, but philosophers and, and writers do. So I, I love the word. So it works both with science and um, humanities. However, what I've discovered over the years is that neither of those meanings is the dominant meaning in the contemporary mindset. When I'm talking to people just casually and I say, I'm a cosmologist, they will, more often than not, assume that I, I work with hairdos and less hair. <laughs> That's I mean, I'm great. serious. I, all the time. It's, yeah, it's happened my, for years and years. Well, you're a very unlikely cosmetologist. Um, <laughs> in the humanities area, those who call themselves cosmologists, 
Are they just really metaphysicians? They're just coming up with intuitive feelings. For instance, I am not a scientist. I don't have mathematical training. I couldn't pass high school algebra. Well, maybe I could if I took the courses again, but I'm probably a cosmologist in terms of your second definition, which is that I'm always speculating about this stuff and thinking about it and so on. Yeah, I would say that um, in the realm of science, uh, for the most part, the vast majority of scientists would insist that there's one methodology for arriving at knowledge. But I think that's far too strict. There are multiple ways of arriving at understanding and, and, and real knowledge. And one of the most powerful is intuition. Certainly, I would consider you a cosmologist with that meaning. There are many people in the humanities who will begin with an understanding that comes from the sciences in terms of the evolution of the universe, and then will expand upon that. I think it's a a great service that these writers and thinkers provide because the scientists were not trained to think that way. And actually, when we do, it doesn't come off well because it sounds like sophomores in high school arguing about things. So we really need each other. The sciences and the humanities really do need each other. For a couple of years, I've had a little chat group going with a dozen friends, half of whom, I would say, have a materialist perspective. They think that consciousness is produced by the brain, even though this half has been meditating a long time and doing spiritual practices, they don't attribute any cosmic significance to their experiences. For instance, you know, they'll say something like, well, you can experience vastness or you can experience the sense that you're one with the universe or that you look at a tree and you, you see yourself in it or any of these kinds of experiences, but you're just reading those interpretations into it. It doesn't mean that you're really one with the universe or that your your individual consciousness, or rather, your consciousness is really unbounded. You're just having that flavor of experience. You could have it with psychedelics or anything else. The other half of the people in this group say, no, actually, the human being is so wired that they can, you use the word intuitive, that they can intuitively or even directly experientially cognize the deeper realities of the universe. And if consciousness is fundamental, and if it is a vast and unbounded field, and the brain is more like a transmitter receiver than a producer of it, then they can actually know that with confidence, with certainty, with authority. But it's very, very difficult to convey to another person, particularly since even other people who actually have an experience along those lines might give a completely different interpretation to it. I don't know. What's your reaction to all that? Well, there are all kinds of deep things happening there. I don't pretend to be able to unravel them, but I am really intrigued by that ongoing conversation that you are having with your friends, but that I think we as contemporary humans are having. It is this relationship between the human mind and the universe. I mean, it's just like, wow kind of the default position that really dominates, I would say, in the universities today is that we're ontologically separate from the universe. Explain what ontologically separate means. When I say even the default position, it's not as if people, for the most part, the general population reflects on this. What I'm talking about is the basic assumptions 
that are given to us by our parents, by our schools, by our, our religions. The basic assumption is the human mind has the power to understand the universe out there. And the universe out there is conceived to be something that is uh, somewhat mechanical. And people use the phrase inert matter or lifeless matter, or dead matter, so that we modern, certainly modern Americans, modern Europeans, we just wake up in a world that takes for granted that we are here inside of our heads and we're looking at a universe out there that is beneath us, meaning it's less complex, less intelligent, it's more dead-like. But if that is the unconscious beginning point in a conversation, the tension can't be resolved, I believe. It, <laughs> so far, it, it hasn't been. Yeah, it's just, it, it, it goes on and on. But now here's my basic take, how I would enter in. I think that the discoveries of scientific cosmology in the 20th century and 21st centuries, the discoveries really do allow different starting points. So here's my little way of summarizing everything I think about with this, these weighty questions. I have this image of a scientist who is in the laboratory and he's investigating the structure of brains. And then the specimen he is focused on is that of a fish. So he's checking out the structure and the dynamism of the brain. And this moment comes, this moment comes when he realizes just like, wow, it's so complex. It's amazing. He's talking about it, the fish brain. And he's overwhelmed with a sense of um, just happiness that he is, has lived this life that enables him to have this deep understanding. And then he thinks about all that was required is he thinks of his professors and the years of training that it took. Then he thinks of his parents. They helped him go through college and and then he had grandparents. And then he goes back further and he starts to express gratitude for himself for his own brain. Like, wow, how wonderful to have this kind of brain. And then he takes the next step and he realizes that the fish he's studying was the ancestor that gave birth to his brain. So all of the mammalian brains really come out of the creativity of fish brains. Fish brains are far more diverse than mammalian brains. So there's this moment when he realizes he is examining one of his own ancestors that enabled him to have this power. So you see, that is a different kind of scientific knowledge. That is, in a real sense, that's knowledge of oneself. Just to call, to have a, a phrase for it, each of us is a cosmological construction that took 14 billion years. So with that starting point, you see, we realize that when we are speculating, I'm going back to your point, like when you and your friends and anyone is speculating on the nature of the universe, that is, in a very literal sense, the universe reflecting upon itself. And so that, to me, is the excitement. We are waking up to the fact that our knowledge is self-knowledge. It's the knowledge of a cosmological being, which is who we are. 
So I guess when you ask me the question, what about the ontological difference between ourselves and the universe? There is none, not really. We are a further development of the universe. So I, I get kind of carried away, Rick, but I mean, that, so that I. basis my orientation. <laughs> so I, yeah, that's great. Probably a dozen times over the years in various interviews, I've quoted that quote of yours where you say, leave hydrogen alone for 13.7 billion years and you end up with rose bushes, giraffes, and humans. There's a lot in that quote, actually, because if the universe is some kind of random accident or totally mechanistic or anything, why should we end up with rose bushes, giraffes, and humans? Why should there be this tendency toward greater complexification of forms and species over the billions of years? Why shouldn't it have just ended up being rocks or nothing at all? And you could actually perhaps throw in here the thing about Stephen Hawking's discovery that if the universe were expanding faster, slower by a factor of, what was it, 10 times, there wouldn't have been a universe. I mean, to me, this speaks of the existence of some kind of intelligence, which we can explore further in our conversation, which has given rise to and orchestrated this whole thing. Yeah, that's how I think of it as well. Exactly. It was a form of intelligence that we're only just beginning to explore, really. So it's not like a a big human. The universe isn't a big human, but it's, wow, it's amazing. It's a green dragon right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, for a while, it was, it was about uh, 20 hours. There, uh, there was an announcement made by astronomers that they had averaged out all the light in the universe. And they said the basic color was green. Oh, cool. And so I thought for like 20 hours, I thought, oh my God, it is a green dragon. <laughs> yeah. But then they corrected it. It, it, oh, is, it is green. <laughs> Well, this thing about intelligence, for instance, I'll read you a quote from this guy, one of the guys who were in that chat group. His name is Jason. He said, simple laws of physics and chemistry are sufficient without the need to invoke this field of all-pervading intelligence. I said, maybe, but maybe we have to invoke this field of all-pervading intelligence in order to account for these simple laws and their continued functioning. Another guy said to me, it might have been Jason, he said, well, yeah, just look at the periodic table of elements. It's fantastic. And From there, we can build the whole thing. And I said, yeah, but that's way too emergent. How the heck did that come to be? So people have this tendency to not take it down to basics enough. Another guy said to me, you know, grant us one miracle that the laws of nature exist, and we can explain the whole rest of it. And I said, no, can't grant you that miracle. Why do those (laughs) laws of nature exist? (laughs) (laughs) I like that. Grant us one miracle. Yeah. (laughs) So what do you think? I guess I would say this, that Wittgenstein, pretty smart guy, he said, I can't quote him exactly, but it's, he basically said something like, one of the greatest stupidities of the modern world is to think that the laws of the universe have been explained. But what is he getting at? Why would somebody with Wittgenstein's intelligence, how would he arrive at such a statement? It's almost universal that we contemporary humans think we've explained the laws of the universe. What's he getting at? It's a startling statement. But then I'm going to add one more to it with uh, someone who's alive, Noam Chomsky. He made this amazing statement. 
it was at a conference down in San Diego. He was quoting from Newton, from Isaac Newton. And he said, if anybody thinks that my universal law of gravitation explains gravity, they are an idiot. They're saying the same thing in a way. They're saying something very, very similar. Was Newton saying there that his law perhaps explains how gravity behaves, but it doesn't explain why there is gravity? Definitely that. And that's the huge point, is that why is there gravity? That's not explained the least bit. But even more, in the sense that Newton doesn't explain how it operates. How it operates. This is what I ended up studying in grad school, is is gravity. And the stunning thing about Newton's equations and then following him, Einstein, but still, they're both similar in that they articulated equations that enabled us to make astounding predictions. But to be able to predict the numbers that will show up in a future experiment is different than explaining the nature of the laws themselves. I guess I would want to lift that up. And the third mind that I'd want to bring into the discussion is Alfred North Whitehead. Alfred North Whitehead, he regarded the laws themselves as fundamentally different from the mathematical formulations of the laws. You have that distinction right away, and just sort of bear that in mind, and that the mathematics is, as I've been repeating myself here, does not explain how the laws themselves function. When Newton was asked this question directly, well, how does it work? How does it happen? And he, he said, I don't make hypotheses. So he backed away from that. He published the mathematical equations. He showed the way in which they make predictions. I, I guess I can't now tell you what they mean, right? I'm not now saying I, I know. I'm saying that there's a fundamental mystery to the very fact that the universe is orderly, that is is appreciated by these deep thinkers. And I think the modern mind becomes lazy and when it thinks that these things have been explained entirely. And, and I'm not talking about the general populace. I'm talking about the, the, some of the finest scientists. Stephen Weinberg. Stephen Weinberg believed that we could explain everything. One of your interlocutors said this. We can explain everything just knowing what took place in the first several minutes of the universe. But that's not true. I know you know this, but just, just to give you a sense where I'm at, the complexities that emerged out of the universe are not present in the equations of gravity or the strong nuclear interaction. Those complexities are an emergent quality of the universe. So my basic stance for better or for worse, is that we are inside of an amazing mystery that enables us to apprehend certain qualities, such as order, but a universe that is constantly transcending itself in terms of what it's bringing forth. That's how I go about my day, thinking. Well, what you just said actually segues into something that I've been discussing with our mutual friend, Tim Freak. Tim, for decades, wrote books about and jibed with the 
classical understanding of Vedanta, you know, philosophy and others that there is a fundamental field of consciousness and that the universe somehow manifests from that and, you know, then becomes more and more complex and so on. And that's basically what I still ascribe to. But his idea is that, in fact, I can quote from him here. He refers to an ocean of intelligence or consciousness as mythological and says that if you need intelligence first before you can get intelligence in the universe, that is just infinitely regressive and gets you nowhere because you need intelligence to get that intelligence and back forever. You just make the big God claim. The intelligence is just there. No reasoning, just a bold insertion of belief. That's what makes this idea so much weaker than the modern ideas from science. I would say, why not the big God claim? Why not a field of intelligence which periodically rises up in manifestation and then eventually collapses back into pralaya, as they call it in Sanskrit, the sort of a cosmic rest period, and then rises up again and perhaps is doing so simultaneously in multiple universes. You know, Tim's idea is that somehow the universe pulls itself up by its own bootstraps and just becomes increasingly conscious as it evolves. And I counter, well, how could it do that? There must be laws of nature. Like you were just saying with Weinberg, you know, he said you can explain everything from the first, what, a few seconds or something. Even before there's any Big Bang, there must be inherent in that from which the Big Bang sprung all the potentialities that we eventually see expressed in the manifest universe. And they just become more and more expressed, more and more manifest as time goes on. But you don't get something from nothing. Anyway, I think I've stated it. I don't want to carry on too long. But that's how he and I kind of go back and forth on this. And where would you fit in? So you talk about a field of intelligence. And and how would Tim, he he would object to that, but how would he want to phrase it? Uh, I'm not sure. He thinks that intelligence or God, even if we want to use the word God, doesn't exist in some primordial sense and is actually coming into being anew along with the manifestation of the universe. And I say to that, fine, if we're talking about the manifest aspect of God or intelligence, but there's also the unmanifest and the, the manifest arises from the unmanifest, like waves arise from the ocean. I know in a certain sense my response will be a disappointment. But no, I don't I, care. <laughs> so, good. You can good. disagree with me. Yeah, Maybe besides, you can dissuade me from looking at it that way. So just so far, I haven't gotten what he's saying. Yeah, and I don't claim to know. Now we get kind of personal. I don't even think, I'm not impressed with my own orientation or anything. But I just want to explore it with you a little bit. And that is, when I was in my 20s, I did nothing but mathematics. I just lived in that realm, and I I loved it, and I still love it. I made a move in terms of consciousness that Alfred North Whitehead, to bring him up again, he said was one of the fundamental mistakes of modern melody, and that is, he called it the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. It's a long, fancy phrase. What it means is simply that we humans, and not just Europeans, not just Americans, but really the human condition makes us vulnerable to this fallacy. And the mistake is to identify reality with what is essentially an abstraction. So in my case, it was the equations of mathematical physics. I didn't actually 
say this out loud. I didn't know enough philosophy to be able to say it out loud. But later, looking back on it, I realized that when I was working with the equations, and I, I think this is true of, of most mathematical scientists, the equations themselves became reality, or if you like, the secret code of the universe that this was the order of the universe. And what I came to understand is something different. This is where I'm getting now to my response to your question. That science has enabled amazing things, especially when we think about technology. I mean, it's just, it really is incredible, the power of science. But there's another power that it provides that I don't think has been sufficiently explored and it's what I'm exploring now. It's easy to state. It's that the mathematical equations, in addition to enabling us to participate in the universe in ways that can become beneficial for us, in actually changing things in a way that helps humans and other forms of life at its best, okay? In addition to all of that, which I affirm, the scientific understanding, the mathematical equations, enable a new experience of reality. And it's that experience of reality that has become my main focus, my main interest. Just think of all the different ways we have to experience reality. I'm just suggesting that the equations themselves enable an experience that hasn't been appreciated or even it happened in the history of humanity. So I'm making this gigantic claim, and I don't want to pretend like I have control over all the meaning that I'm touching on. I don't. I feel like we're just beginning to step into this. I gave the example of the ichthyologist working on a fish brain, and that would be an example of what I mean. That scientific understanding that comes from our discovery of evolution that scientific understanding enables a relationship, an experience that is unlike previous experiences of the depths of things. I'm not saying it's better. I'm going to be really clear. I'm not saying it's better than the various cultural means of deep experience that have been discovered and cultivated for millennia. I'm simply saying it's a new one. That's all I mean. It's a new experience of what I would call, in traditional language, the sacred. It's a new touch into the sacred. So that's, that's how I would respond to your question. We were talking earlier about the possible ontological connection between the individual and the universe. And I guess in my simple terminology, I would describe that as being that whatever our essential nature is, must also be the essential nature of the universe because we're part of the universe. And in spiritual circles, people say, okay, well, that essential nature is sometimes called the self or pure consciousness or Brahman. There's this sort of underlying foundation that's redundant, but there's a foundation <laughs> which, which is pure consciousness, which is being, which has qualities such as intelligence and bliss and things like that. And if that's the case, then it sort of ties right in with this whole idea of could the universe have come out of consciousness or some field of intelligence and so on. 
And could its purpose in coming out have been to eventually give rise to beings such as ourselves and perhaps much more highly evolved beings who could have these kinds of conversations and cognitions about what reality is? In other words, for the reality of being to become a living reality, living, breathing, acting, loving reality, rather than just an abstract one, which kind of fits in with the Sanskrit idea of lila or play. It's like more fun for God to be doing all this than to just lie there in this cosmic ocean doing nothing. Yeah. As you're talking, I just feel these qualities wanting to come forth. It's a lovely feeling. And then the other thought, as you're talking, I thought, when we first emerged, we, sapiens, maybe 200,000 years ago, maybe 300,000 years ago, it's impossible to put a, a start because it's a continuous evolutionary process. But I just try to imagine myself back there living in a group of, say, 20 individuals and trying to find our way forward and, and succeeding, these were descendants from the ones who succeeded. And the sorts of things that they would know, they learned some amazing things for sure about about the universe. And then other things that were not so helpful or dropped off. But then there are these moments when the human populations, they move into experiences that were new. So it's easy for me to imagine, and it seems commonplace to think that there they are in Africa. None of them, none of them are having experiences of a field of intelligence filling the whole universe. And then they were. In other words, there was a discovery made. And then it's all written down and celebrated in the axial age. So now we develop ways of bringing forth these amazing qualities that we now call divine, right? Like you say, love and compassion and so forth. So I tend to think that those are, those are great discoveries. I know that I would be really happy myself in one of these metaphysical formulations because right away, as you start talking, I just feel my spirit lift and become lighter. But I'm also thinking possibly that this new breakthrough that we you know we call the evolutionary cosmology, I think it it's going to develop its own processes for evoking experiences that may be very similar to what's in Vedanta and other systems, maybe even identical. I don't know, but I guess as much as possible, I try to stay with deep in my own experiences in this, just to see if something beneficial might arise. You know, it takes all my time, <laughs> Rick. What I would love is, I mean, and I think in the future, there'll be a profound engagement between these various spiritual traditions. But the scientific will have blossomed into a wisdom tradition. It's not there yet, but that's kind of the crazy intuition I have. I'm trying to be part of the maturation of the scientific venture. Oh, me too. And that excites me a lot. I don't have the scientific chops that you have, obviously, but I've been doing the spiritual thing for 54 years or so in this lifetime. And I'm, You're 54? Oh, no, no, I'm 73, but I've been oh, meditating <laughs> for 54 years. <laughs> yeah, I'd be a little bit weather beaten if I were 54. <laughs> but I'm just saying, I've always been excited, as you are, by the 
interplay of science and spirituality. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the two complement each other and can potentially provide what the other lacks. Yeah, exactly. Right. I agree completely. That's why it's so great to be alive now. Yes, yeah, exciting. I mean, I mean, it's just so exciting. And to think that just even a couple centuries ago, there's no way you could have this kind of interaction. And we were all split up in separate continents and so forth. Yeah, you get burned at the stake for talking about this stuff. Yeah, just think of it. <laughs> you know, it's it's so easy to be concerned about the way things are going now. But I really do think it's important for us, those of us who are drawn to it, to celebrate how fantastic it is. Yeah. Boy, that's like bubbling in the back of my mind are about six questions I want to ask you. But uh, <laughs> but I want to tie up some things we've already talked about. You were talking about mathematics and how it, it somehow evokes a state of consciousness or a way of experiencing, if you can really do the mathematics, that you otherwise wouldn't have. And I imagine that was, that would be true. I mean, I, you know, I've never been able to do it, but I can imagine someone like yourself or some of the great like Einstein or Hawking or so on, just being so deeply into their mathematical world that it's it's like a higher state of consciousness. Yeah. And haven't various people marveled at the fact that mathematics even works, that it has this correlation with the way the universe works and that we are actually able to come up with this language which so precisely matches or, or correlates or predicts what's happening in the universe? One of Einstein's most powerful experiences was that the stunning realization that the universe is comprehensible. Yeah. I mean, why should E equal MC squared? How is it we can have this little equation that actually describes the speed of light and its relation to matter and so on? Exactly. Going back to what I was saying earlier about how that the equations don't really explain the natural processes their movement into an explanation, but not a final explanation. So I don't want to be seen as someone who is throwing out science at all. But what's amazing is just like you say, E equals MC squared. No one knows why that is. Where did it come from? What does it say? And I think this is one of the biggest things for me is that science doesn't explain away mystery. If you reflect on it, it deepens the mystery. E equals MC squared. Seriously, you can think about that for the rest of your life. That would be an example of the kind of experience that's possible that's related to looking at some sacred uh, Sanskrit phrases or Aramaic, whatever sacred scripture you look at. The equations are like that. Yeah. You were also talking about Paul Dirac in one of your videos and how he kept coming up with this 10 to the 40th and how that seemed to correspond to a whole bunch of different things at different scales. It's another one of those jaw-dropping connections. Absolutely. And he just touched upon an order that was expressed mathematically. But then the implications were just stunning. And this research is ongoing. And it's also contested. There's nowhere near a consensus on this. But nevertheless, Paul Dirac, Nobel Prize in physics, I mean, he's a genius, no question about it. And he stumbled on this insight into order via the mathematics. 
It ends up with a view of the universe that celebrates our existence as something that was built into the universe from the very, very beginning. It changes me when spending these years thinking about it. But it's open-ended. It's still happening. But I'm glad you picked up on Dirac. I'm so amazed by him. And not only our existence. I mean, we might be sea slugs by comparison with some of the beings that may exist in this universe. And we may have a long way to go. (laughs) Sea slugs. (laughs) I like it. (laughs) But that would sort of lead us into... um, your main work these days, which is the Human Energy Project and the Newosphere and so on. And as I understand it, that all arose from, I believe you met Teilhard de Chardin, and, and then you had a close relationship for a long time with Thomas Berry. Talk about those things a little bit. Great. But I, I need to say, I wish I had met Teilhard de Chardin. Okay, I, I, I misunderstood. I, I was hearing some video or something. Like yeah, that. I wish. I wish. Jean Houston did. Remember her story? Yeah. She yeah, ran I into I, I wish Central I could tell Park story. and locked him down, actually, when she was 14. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been something. He's the principal philosopher, theologian, but fundamentally, he's a cosmologist. So for those listening that don't know him, he was a French paleontologist and a Jesuit priest. And he, my way of talking about him is that he's the first person to get a glimpse into what can be called the sacred dimension of evolutionary time. Evolution was really just discovered, and he was one that took it further in a spiritual sense. And then Thomas Berry, who died 10 years ago, he was my teacher for years and years, and just a fabulous guy, a cultural historian. So he spent most of his time working on spiritual traditions of Asia, but as well as as Europe. And he he did a profound um, immersion into the the wisdom of indigenous people. So that was so great to be able to get a feel for the spectrum of um, the wisdom traditions. And uh, going back to your question about the field of intelligence and so forth, which could be called God. But one time I would write things and send it to Thomas. And I was reflecting on the nature of God. And, and he said, don't do that. Don't reflect on the nature of God. I said, why not? People want to know about God. And, and he said, yeah, but you're not the one to teach him. Huh. You haven't thought about it enough. So <laughs> I, I've always shied away from making much statements because I'm not a scholar of um, religion or spirituality. No, but the thing is, Brian, you're a scholar of the universe and the history of the universe and the yeah. mechanics of its manifestation and so on. And I think we can't really fully appreciate God in, unless we understand that. And so I, I think what you have to say, like I said a minute ago, science and spirituality um, enrich one another. And without science, spirituality has fostered all kinds of wacky ideas. And without spirituality, science is rather stale. And you have statements such as my friend Jason here, which says all indications so far is that creation is random and motiveless. So I really think the two of them need each other to fulfill and further their missions. I agree completely. That was also Teilhard's point of view, because we're talking about him. He made this, to me, really wonderful insight. He said that people uh, in the modern period tend to think of religion as 
decaying and having lost its promise. He said, on the contrary, the religions are going to grow ever more pervasive and powerful in the sense of wisdom as they learn to understand themselves inside the evolutionary context. That was his point. Certainly, um, Catholicism and Protestantism, they're locked into medieval and early modern understanding of things. Once again, I get all excited thinking about, wow, we don't even understand what Buddhism is. We don't understand what Christianity is. We will only understand it as we see it unfold inside this new era. That's very true. There's a great quote from Carl Sagan. I was just about to pull it up, but it'll take too much time. But he says something like, religion should rejoice over the things science is discovering because it's indicating that God is much grander than they supposed. But unfortunately, they all tend to say, no, 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 our God is a little God and we want to keep him that way. <laughs> I use pictures of galaxies and especially now with the web telescope, new pictures from that as my desktop background. So oh, yeah. I can look at this stuff all day because it gives me a spiritual experience. It evokes awe and reverence. That's great. Incidentally, I want to just stick in a nice little comment somebody sent in here, and we'll, then we'll continue with what we're discussing. But this is from Lisa Field in the Virginia Mountains. She said, I, I began seeing Canticle to the Cosmos episodes when I was 28, very much in despair over the timbering, chip mills, songbird species losses, etc. I loved God through nature, so it was a deep grief for me. Thanks to Brian Swim's joy-based, powerful teachings, I started two conservation groups and a land trust in Tennessee and Virginia. We saved thousands of forest mountain acres in the Cumberlands and Southwest Virginia, etc. Thank you, great soul. <laughs> I like that. Lisa, thank you. You know, Lisa? Wow. No, but anybody that could pull that off. You oh, inspired her to do that. That's fantastic. Isn't that cool? She's the great soul one. <laughs> That's fantastic. That yeah. really cheers me up. So mapping the noosphere. Define the noosphere. Yeah. Or noosphere. I use noosphere, but both are used. Absolutely. The noosphere, the simplest definition is the noosphere is the united humanity. That'd be the simplest way. The next level would be the noosphere is the next stage of Earth's evolution. So Scientifically, we know the Earth began four and a half billion years ago as molten rock, and then the oceans came forth. And so we can call that the geosphere. And then um, life emerged in various complex ways and then spread out over the whole planet and then altered the atmosphere, for instance. And we call that the biosphere. And then humanity emerged and coming out of the geosphere, coming out of the biosphere, but with the power that the other living beings did not have. And this new power enabled it to actually spread out over the planet and become as powerful as the geosphere or the biosphere. In the simplest sense, humanity now alters the atmosphere each year more than all of life considered together. In other words, we've matched the power of the biosphere, but it even goes further. This is going to be hard to believe, but humanity now moves 
more of the material of earth than the winds and the tides and the volcanoes all together humanity moves the earth more just by digging things up you mean mining yeah, and that kind of stuff yes exactly building yeah. you know and transporting goods i know as i say that of course what comes into our mind is yeah but look at the damage we've done it's obscene brian to hear you say that we are we're matching the biosphere we're destroying the biosphere we're ruining the geosphere and to a certain degree of course i this is true but i'm trying to say how to think about the noosphere the noosphere is this connected up humanity that has even changed the dynamics of biological evolution we've altered things even at that level so what i'm doing in exploring this is working with others to participate in a full emergence of the noosphere that's the promise we are becoming a thinking planet but we're not aware of it we're bringing to our activities the consciousness of just another mammalian species survive and multiply but we haven't yet fully grasped who we are i go back to just to refer we are the universe reflecting upon and activating itself in conscious self awareness it's a, a new understand the noosphere is a new understanding of why we are here what we are about is at that level it's one of these colossal ideas that teilhard de chardin arrived at in mid 20th century i heard you say in one of your talks that humans accelerate evolution a million times faster than other animals something you just said reminded me of that so we've somehow gained the ability to go pedal to the metal why is that what is it about us that enables us to do that what enables us to do that is the the special quality that um humanity has i think it's worth while for all of us on a regular basis to ask that question what is it about humans that makes us special and that has led to this powerful presence i think it's important because it's so essential for us to advance if you do it if you reflect on it you'll notice that all kinds of orientations will appear because we've been struggling with this question ever since human reflection began it's another way of asking the question who are we i mean who are we i mean and it's a fresh way of asking the question because now it's within an evolutionary context so the power that we have is symbolic consciousness or if you like a symbolic language and all animal species have languages but we're the only species that we've come upon that has a symbolic language that can be uh, expressed in forms that endure through time so with that one move to learn how to capture our experiences in a way that our descendants can appreciate and hold on to that with that one move we changed ourselves from individuals 
into a large community, meaning that, for instance, ask yourself, where is the English language? Where does it reside? Well, it's not in dictionaries. It's in each of us, but it's not contained in any one of us. The English language or the human language is held by humanity. It is this way in which we can connect with each other and we can learn from each other. So if a deep insight occurs to a walrus one day, he can benefit from it. He might be able to express it enough for the nearby walruses to benefit from it. But it has a tendency to die out with the death of that walrus. But our best insights carry forward. So an easy way to see what the noosphere is and to see what is special about humanity is this. We have minds that are 300,000 years in development. Just think of every time we speak or do anything, we're drawing upon knowledge that goes back to the beginning, really, of humanity. That's why we are evolving a million times faster than any other species. It's another way in which the universe has transcended itself. Biological evolution has transcended itself with cultural evolution. You remember that book by Isaac Asimov, a short story called Nightfall? Remember that one? No. It was a planet that had a bunch of suns. And it never got dark because the sun was always up. But every couple thousand years, the suns configured themselves such that the planet went dark. And everybody freaked out and burned all the books because they had to <laughs> keep the light going. You know? And so that kind of wiped out the, the knowledge base of that, of that civilization. And they had to start from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> that's a riot. Yeah. Okay, so that's, that's very interesting. I'm thinking, you know, as you were speaking, I was thinking that in a way we've always had a global brain or a global mind, but it's been primitive. It's been kind of psychotic, you know, schizophrenic or whatever. We're bombing each other. We're basically fighting against ourselves because we're really all one family. So there's all this fratricide going on. So what we hope, I suppose, what you're hoping is that the advancements in knowledge and technology will enable us to enable this global mind to become healthy and to stop fighting within itself. Is that a fair assessment? Definitely. That's what um, that we're working toward. Yeah, exactly. Well, psychotic is a little strong, but definitely it's, <laughs> I don't know. There are some pretty psychotic things going. In the I agree with you. I yeah. agree with you. I agree with you. Here's an example of what I'm, I'm trying to get across. The San Bushmen, they've been studied so carefully. And, and the early investigators discovered that linguistically, they didn't have a word that would be, like when I say San Bushmen, thinking of this whole group, they didn't have a word that pertained to all of the, the different groups. They didn't Among have them, a word. All of their different groups, you mean? Yeah, so that they would have a word for their own group and there'd be a, a word for this other group seen as other. But they didn't but have a word like humanity, like we Exactly. Have, right. No, exactly. Our minds haven't yet developed even the capacity to think certain things that are required for us in order to advance. 
one of the ways this really came through to me was we didn't know about the reality of extinction really until the 19th century when philosophers would reflect on it on the idea of, well you know extinction they would more often than not come to the conclusion it's impossible i find this so stunning the extinction that, of what any species or what of any species here's an example of what i mean one of the reasons thomas jefferson was in favor of the Louisiana Purchase is because he was hoping that we would find the dinosaurs there. Swear to God. Because he thought they couldn't have gone extinct. Exactly. There was awareness of these gigantic bones and a mind as superior as Thomas Jefferson. He was one of the most intelligent people of the time. He thought the dinosaurs lived over there. The whole thing of evolutionary time had not really... Here's another one. I mean, Thomas Jefferson is one thing. Ralph Waldo Emerson, who is probably the the greatest um, cosmologist America produced before uh, mathematical cosmology, he was convinced that it was impossible for a species to go extinct. And then while these philosophers are convinced it's impossible, we were destroyed already species so yeah, the dodo bird was went extinct around that time i believe and probably many others and then many others that we weren't even aware of right i don't want to call that a psychotic mind but it's it's a mind that is so ignorant of what is taking place and i'm talking about my mind i think we are so profoundly ignorant of of the deeper dimension of what's taking place In other words, we don't have the intellectual categories to take in reality in its fullest. And maybe we won't for a million years. I mean, in other words, this is the whole thing that I find thrilling about the way in which humanity is developing and and deepening our understanding. You see my point? Yeah. I think that atrocities that we're carrying out are only possible because we have more development that's needed. Yeah, absolutely. Forgive them, Father. They know not what they do. When you were talking earlier about, I forget how you phrased it, but about the noosphere being the conscious global mind that's awake to itself or awake to its global nature or something like that. The thought that popped up in my mind was, okay, but there are going to have to be a lot of individuals who are awake to their true nature in order to have such a mind. Because if you you have 8 billion people who really don't know themselves, don't know thyself, then that's going to reflect in the quality of the global mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. So that gets us down to spirituality again and the potential it has to bring about self realization. Yes. Yeah. The noosphere is technology is a huge part of the noosphere, but it's not technology alone that will enable us to bring the noosphere forth in a more benevolent way. It really is spiritual development. Yeah. And of course, spiritual development now is being greatly aided by technology. Look at this conversation you and I are having, which we couldn't have had even 20 years ago. And many such things, all these great wisdom teachings that when they were originally taught, they propagated in a radius that was about as far as somebody could walk in their sandals <laughs> over several years. And, and now they just flash around the world constantly. Yeah, yeah. Another indication of the emergence of the noosphere. Yeah. You know, one thing I think, which I'd like to hear your thoughts on, is that 
there is some kind of spiritual awakening taking place in the world, which is keeping a pace, more or less, maybe it's neck and neck, but keeping a pace with the exponential growth of technology. And if that were not the case, the technology alone would do us in, as it is capable of doing even now. You know, there's a beautiful thing about that you talked about how the sun became 25% hotter over a certain period of time and life adapted accordingly to the increased temperature of the sun. I, I think correspondingly, life is adapting in the sense that a spiritual awakening is underway, which is essential to ensure that the technological explosion doesn't destroy the planet. Yeah, right. I like the way you put it, that they're rising up together. Yeah. And or another, another phrase, they're co-evolving. Yeah, and I think the spiritual thing, I mean, I think the technology thing is taking a step out in front of the spiritual thing, and it's playing catch-up, because obviously there's a lot of, I mean, people who don't realize this or who don't consider the spiritual dimension, many become depressed and suicidal, or they don't want to have children and so on, because they say, you know, we're screwed, the way things are going. Yeah. Exactly. Like that woman who sent in the question from Virginia. She was all depressed until she heard what you were saying, and then she could take action. Yeah. Let's dwell on that a minute, because that occupies a lot of us. I just think it's important to to take in the rise in suicide and the rise in depression. Going back now, this relates to what I was saying before, that, that science can provide a pathway of wisdom. This would be an example of it. How are we to feel about our present moment where thousands of species are being extinguished each year and we're still dragged into warfare? How are we to think about that? My fundamental orientation is that we need to begin with the universe itself in our thinking. We need to establish ourselves in the universe, and then do our thinking, as opposed to establishing ourselves in the economics of America or the politics of Europe, or just begin with something larger. Immanuel Kant, such a profound philosopher, and he made really a great statement. I disagree with a lot of the things he said, but he was talking about humanity needing to become new. And, and he said, the only way we're going to escape the warfare and this type of existence. The only way is to develop into beings who see the whole first. I love that. That's great. See the whole first and then bring yourself into it. So here's my little uh, practice. Here's a spiritual practice for anyone who's interested in it. What we've learned, and it is really something else, we've learned that all of the atoms of our body were constructed by stars. So the carbon atom, a single carbon atom, the only way we know it could come into existence is for a star to construct it and then explode and send it out into the galaxies. Okay, so here it is. Think of the atoms of your body and each one of them, and then recognizing that each one of them comes from a star. And now go back in time, before the birth of the earth and sun, before the birth, and imagine the cloud 
stretched out over thousands of light years, every atom that presently comprises who you are, presently, imagine those atoms, and they imagine they have little sparkles so you can see them. They're stretched out over trillions upon trillions of trillions of miles. Now, suppose somehow all of those atoms were brought together through this long evolutionary process to become you. And the very fact that that happened is stupendous. The complexity of it blows our minds. Now, just imagine if that challenge had been your challenge. What if you were responsible for getting all those atoms together? At least for myself, when I dwell on the fact of my existence and the unlikelihood of it and the complexity of it, it brings about a lightness of being because we're inside of forces and powers that are so far beyond us, but here we are. Reflections like that help me escape becoming depressed by the daily news. Yeah, that's great. Organizing all the atoms that formed your body. I mean, if you were responsible for digesting your lunch, you'd be lost, or for making your heart beat over the last minute or anything else. There's so many things that just nature takes care of it. So then this would be a way, just like you say, to digest your lunch. There are patterns of that process that were actually invented three billion years ago on the earth process. And when we can begin to take in that we are this construction project of the universe, then we're learning to see the whole first. When we begin with the creative work that was required for us to have any relationship whatsoever, then we're beginning with the whole. That's, that's basically what I was trying to say. The science offers a new way of thinking about the whole first. Yeah, that's great. What you've just been saying over the last few minutes reminds me of a, a verse from the Bhagavad Gita, which is, it's established in being, perform action. That's what, chapter 2, verse 48. And Say it again, it's established a, in being. Established in being, perform action. And the implication of the verse, the book goes on to elaborate, is that you know human intellect cannot possibly take into account all the ramifications of every action that we perform all the variables and all the influences it has and everything else. But if you're established in being your own nature, pure consciousness, which is this, I keep alluding it to as the source of and foundation of the universe, then the intelligence which orchestrates the universe, which brought all these atoms together to form your body, becomes the charioteer of your life. And your life can proceed with the wisdom that you would have if you had some sort of omniscience, but you couldn't possibly have because you're only a human being. I love that. Let me connect it to the noosphere. So when the noosphere is emerging, but it is also in its acting, it's acting to draw forth a behavior and forms of consciousness that will enable it to emerge further. Just to give a, a physical example, Protons can experience an attraction. It's called the strong nuclear interaction. So this attraction, what scientists have learned is that if this attraction is altered, even as much as 2%, then long burning stars become an impossibility. Even in a subtle way, 
at the level of protons, again, this would be in the, the thinking of, of, of Der de Chardin, the attraction we feel is the future working to bring itself forward. So, like you said, again, I can't quote your words exactly, but established in being, perform action. So that if one is established in being, well, then this would be from the point of view of the noosphere, where we are today in this moment is being in part orchestrated by our own deepest fascinations. So the way in which what we find ourselves fascinated by is the noosphere drawing us into activity that will make its embodiment clear. Spiritual development is expressed differently with the noosphere, but it is it's profoundly similar to what you were saying. Yeah. About the Bhagavad Gita. I mean, the reason that verse came up was that Arjuna couldn't figure out what to do. He was he was in this quandary where his heart and his mind were in conflict and he just didn't see a path of action that he could take. And Krishna, who was advising him, said, Well, you're right, you can't figure it out from a superficial level, the level of human intellect alone. You have to take recourse to a much vaster intelligence which resides deep within you, get established in that, and your action will spontaneously do the right thing, even if you wouldn't have been able to work it out otherwise. And with what you're saying about the noosphere, I gather that it, there's a collective intelligence which is more than the sum of its parts just as our body is more than the sum of its cells and that it has an intelligence of its own just as our body has an intelligence of its own and we as an individual don't totally grok that intelligence just as an individual cell in our body doesn't realize what the whole collection of cells is doing or an ant in an ant colony or a bee in a beehive but the collective intelligence governing the earth or in our body, in the case of that analogy, has the wisdom to work it out. And um, I suppose maybe you would say that what we have to do in order for the noosphere to really wake up is attune to it as best we can so that we align with its intentions. In fact, there was some quote I pulled about aligning here. Humanity acting as a whole might act in ways that are harmonious with life. There was something else that you said was beautiful about aligning one's individual intentions with the global intention of the noosphere in order to enable it to realize its full potential. Oh, here it is. I found it. Are we aligned with Earth's primary aim, which is to construct a planetary mind? That's the question that we should ask ourselves. There you go. Okay. Let me dwell on that. Do I use the phrase Earth's primary aim? That's what you did. Yeah, I pulled that from one of your videos, I think. Yeah, I believe I said it. But I I want to approach it from a a slightly different angle and say the same thing. And I'll tell you right away what the angle is. I think we have a dual aspect to our nature in that each of us is just this person that lives in a certain place and has relationships and so forth. And we are the manifestation of something vast. And the language here would be different, but... I've already said a number of times, we're individual people going about our day, and we are a cosmological construction that required 14 billion years, simultaneously, same time. So that it's the question of what is the primary aim of Earth, and how does that relate to our daily lives? So, so far, this is the best example I have of conveying what the noosphere is. 
the best example I have, and that is the James Webb Space Telescope. Yeah, I quoted that you hear too. You said the Noah's there built the James Webb Telescope. I pulled that yes. out. <laughs> yeah. And even though the noosphere, it's a complex idea, but also it's a simple idea. And I, what I like about it, it makes it really, really clear. I started off saying, imagine ourselves back 300,000 years. So just imagine ourselves back then. I'll bet you anything, people were looking at the stars and going, I mean, what's going on? And they would think about it because they're so compelling you know, for humans. And that interest in the stars continues for all 300,000 years. So my first point is this, that would be an example of a primary human urge. The primary human urge is to understand what's the nature of where we are. But a couple of interesting facts about the James Webb Space Telescope. It was constructed by engineers in 14 different countries. And they put together all their skill and knowledge and built the James Webb Telescope. So each of them is essential, but not one of them alone can do it. But think of this, hold it. Each of those engineers had to learn from their teachers, grade school, high school, college. And those teachers were passing on knowledge that had been formulated millennia in the past. So they're essential for the building of the James Webb Space Telescope. So were the farmers to feed them. So were the political figures that kept society ordered enough so that this human development could take place. And so in the most obvious way, a billion humans went back through time and present today could look at the James Webb Space Telescope and say, we built it. It was all of us with each one being essential. So that's an example of the noosphere in action. The James Webb Space Telescope is a hundred times more sensitive than the Hubble. There's no question, but we will learn things about the birth of the universe never learned before our time. A lot of scientists are very confident that we will be the generation that identifies living planets. There's something like 50 billion planets in the Milky Way galaxy Around 300 million of them are Earth-like. So those are going to be examined carefully, and we will be able to establish if they're living or not. My point is that just think of this knowledge. Think of what we've learned compared to what we knew at 300,000 years ago when we were just kind of like amazed by the stars. So this is the noosphere in action. It was satisfying a deep, urge in humanity, the urge to know the nature of the universe, the nature of where we are. But here's my last point. There are other primordial urges. I don't know how exactly to name them, but there's the urge to educate. There's the urge to heal. There's the urge to build structures that that, that protect us. And there's the urge to forgive. We have a deep desire to forgive and make amends. So if we think of these primordial human desires and they are being fulfilled by the noosphere, by the human collective, we get a new sense of what it means to be human. That would be the simplest way I know 
to give a, an explanation of the noosphere. Actually, just gave me a much deeper appreciation of it than I've had so far. And I watched all the videos on your uh, Human Energy Project site, and I've been thinking about the noosphere all week. But what you just said really hit home. What was new? I'm curious. Well, as you were saying it, I got a more visceral feeling of the noosphere as an, a single entity, of collective consciousness as a single entity. And I thought of the James Webb telescope like we've grown a new eye, which yeah, is so much more yeah. sophisticated than the eye we had or the eyes we had. And then you mentioned other things like healing and various other things. And so these are all potentialities, which we as a global being need to evolve beyond where they are now. And we can only do it together. What you just said about the web, I remember um, was also said about the moon landing. Someone said, well, nobody knows exactly how we did it because it had to be so compartmentalized because there was so much involved. No one person could have contained all that knowledge. So there are certain things that just have to be collaborative efforts or endeavors. And it's just exciting. I mean, it's exciting to think of how if we could just get our act together and be more harmonious as a species, how much profoundly more we could accomplish. Because as it is now, we just waste so much time and energy and resources fighting each other and ripping each other off in various ways and, you know, wealth inequities and all these other things. If we could really become harmonious, we could literally reach for the stars. And what's so great is to reflect on the fact that what we will bring forth even goes beyond our ability to understand now. It's unprethinkable in Schelling's terms. It gives a thrill for being alive. That's why I so want to get to people that are depressed by our situation. Great things are happening. They really are. Again, if we think of the noosphere or collective consciousness of humanity as a single entity, then there are cancers within that entity, which are gobbling up more than their share and, uh, you know, usurping the territories of other organs in the entity where they don't belong and and things like that. You can imagine a, a really harmonious collective consciousness and how there'd be this feedback loop between the whole and the individual and the whole and the individual enriching each other beyond what we can imagine, perhaps. It's so important what you're saying, the feedback. It's not some amorphous thing out there. It's a deepening collective intelligence, which activates an individualistic intelligence. Both happen simultaneously. And the individual intelligence enriches or enlivens the collective intelligence. So it's this Back and forth, exactly. And it works both ways. If we keep spewing out negativity and incoherence, then... That comes back to us. Yeah, exactly. But you know, this thing you said about not being depressed and suicidal and and all that and not giving up hope. I don't think anybody has to wait for all of humanity to get their act together in order for them to get their act together. Of course, a lot of people have it tough. I mean, you're born in a ghetto or something and you don't have the educational opportunities and so on. But within the context of wherever we find ourselves, I think there's always room for exercising one's intention, one's free will, and um, progressing to a great extent. Uh, it completely brings to mind that statement. If you ever think that one small individual can't make a difference, try to sleep with a mosquito in the room. Oh, that one. Okay. <laughs> right. That's a good one. I was thinking of some Margaret Mead quote where uh, she was oh, talking about 
if you think a small group can really make a big change, that's the only thing that ever has or something like that. Yeah. yeah. Good. We've got our quotes out. The question came in. Let me just ask this. It's back to Thomas Berry. Someone named Thomas Sullivan in New Hampshire wants to know what your opinion of, of Thomas Berry's book, Dream of the Earth. This is Thomas Sullivan? A Thomas Sullivan in New Hampshire. I think it's one of the greatest books that I've ever read. I love it. And it may be that because you know I was raised in, in a Christian family, Catholic family, it had special significance for me. So I, I can't speak for others. But he saw through so many of the superficial temptations that were prey to. And he gave an, an interpretation of history that is remarkable. I highly recommend Dream of the Earth to anyone who has a sense of our moment being a pivotal moment, moving into another era of humanity with a new sense of the sacred is profoundly ecological. He's one of the first people to use the phrase integral ecology. So he saw ecology as an entire interpretation of the universe. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, here are a couple of quotes that I lifted from your videos. Polarization is a symptom of our having entered a phase transition. And here's another one. A good deal of chaos will accompany the transformation. So there's a lot of polarization taking place these days, particularly in American politics, but I imagine in, in other realms. And there's a good deal of chaos, and there could be a good deal more. I was just reading the other day about some giant glacier in Antarctica, which is in danger of breaking loose and raising sea levels a couple of feet. That will be huge if that were to happen. So as you watch current events and read about things like glaciers in Antarctica and so on, are you able to put a positive spin on it in the sense that you see these things as symptomatic of a phase transition taking place and that better times are coming? Well, the challenge is not to sink into despair when we take in what's happening today. Going back to Thomas Berry, he said, uh, because we would talk about despair, and his phrase was, despair is a luxury we can't afford. But nevertheless, and we're talking about spiritual development, again, quoting Thomas Berry, he said, um, the first benefit of spiritual development is the strength to endure the chaos of our time. That's always uh, meant a lot to me. One more quote, and this is one of my all-time favorites, and it relates exactly to your question. It's actually uh, from Alfred Krober, an anthropologist at UC Berkeley. He's the one that found um, and worked with um, Ishi, the last wild Indian. Anyway, what he said was, the ideal state for the human is not exactly bovine placidity. It is rather the highest degree of tension that can be creatively born. And that's always meant so much to me because we do have, in America at least, there's a strain of wanting bovine placidity. It has to do with the drive for material wealth, money, as a way of being done with all of that the, you know, the tension and hardship of life and then just securing yourself inside of a palace and then watching media and 
it's a kind of bovine plasticity. But what we need is creative leadership in the midst of this, just to be able to, this is the noosphere in action. It's delivering to us the extreme states of suffering all around the planet. And in no way will I say that these are somehow a good thing. I want that understood very clearly that this is absolutely horrific. However, because it is taking place, it can serve you. And now just speaking to anyone who is disturbed, because the transformation that Rick and I have been talking about throughout our conversation is a deep change, a deep change of heart, a deep change of mind. It's it's coming to a, a fundamentally new insight into what it means to be human. And it's hard to change one's fundamental orientation in the universe. It's extremely difficult. But the suffering that's taking place on the planet can be beneficial if you allow it to break down those structures of your existence that are actually participating in the violence. It does have that power. But suddenly you realize you can see through all the false allurements of contemporary society and see into what is essential. You can awaken to the whole and what your role might be in the midst of it. So that's basically how I respond to the difficulty. I, I try to hold it in my heart and wonder in what way can I be part of the solution. In the Hindu mythology, Shiva the destroyer was regarded with as much reverence, if not more, than Brahma the creator. It was understood that destruction is part of creation, and sometimes things have to crumble in order for something better to come along. I mean, exploding stars is a good example. And when stars explode, there might be populated planets around them, and eventually our star will grow to engulf the Earth and It won't be pretty if you happen to be around when that begins to happen. But in the big picture, there's evolution taking place. That's right. The first time I ever met Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, it was a course in 1970. He was talking about the pace of change and the pace of society and how it's getting more and more intense. And he said, if if a donkey is required to carry a heavy load and the, the load gets to be too much, there are two things you can do, lighten the load or strengthen the donkey. And he said, unfortunately, we can't lighten the load in terms of what the world is undergoing. It's just going to get more fast paced. But he said, we have to become stronger from within. And then that's nice. That's nice. Strong enough to face it. Yeah, strong enough to be able and to actually benefit from it. As that quote you just said, reminding you of Nietzsche saying that whatever doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Yeah. What do you think about this? There's so many things that exist in today's world that really couldn't or shouldn't exist in a a more ideal world. And some of these things are major pillars of our economy and so on. So somehow or other, if we're actually going to shift to a more enlightened world, those things are going to have to transition in some way, and it it may be rather disruptive. Yeah. Just a comment on that point. I remember when I learned um, there's a breaking of symmetry in the early universe. It's kind of clear. I can do it quickly. Our thinking about the early universe was that the matter comes out of the quantum vacuum. There's no doubt about that. But the strange thing is that in the early universe, there was an asymmetry to the emergence of these 
elementary particles. Protons emerged, antiprotons emerged. And when a proton and an antiproton come together, they disappear into light. The bizarre thing is that in the early moments of the universe, with all these particles bubbling out of the vacuum, there was an asymmetry in that for every billion antiprotons, there was a billion plus one protons. So that the idea is that the universe had a billion times more matter at the beginning than it did a little later. I remember learning this and thinking, that is so bizarre and strange. But then a similar thing, and this is the last one I'll mention about this, is that the number of species alive today is only 1% of the number of species that have come forth. And I, I, I was a young person. I thought, that's just so bizarre that you'd extinguish 99% of life in order to get to the human. That's how I was thinking. But nevertheless, the fundamental error I was making was that I thought I could do things better. I thought if I were in charge, for instance, I wouldn't have all the protons and antiprotons annihilating each other. I would just start out with the protons I need, right? And then when we get to Earth, I wouldn't have all these species fluttering in and out and going extinct. I would just get some dirt, you know, bring it together and make the humans. The simplistic way of interpreting the Bible. This goes back to the very early part of our conversation. And when we get these intuitions, that we live inside a field of intelligence, but it's an intelligence we don't understand because it's different from human intelligence. So I'm not saying that the disasters are a good thing, but they are part of what's taking place. I love that with the honoring of destruction in Hinduism. This goes to this whole notion of embracing our moment as it is and participating in the emergence of of something even better. I'm thinking as you're saying that, that if there's a multiverse and there are, you know, basically an infinite number of universes, you can sign up to be God in one of them and try out your idea of (laughs) not having the antimatter and the matter, you know. (laughs) Let's see what happens. (laughs) See how it works, yeah. Put in an application for that. This is actually segueing us into something that we kind of started with in the beginning, but I've gotten to it in my notes and I want to come back to couple more quotes I've lifted from your videos. Creativity is incessant and pervasive throughout space and time. And then you also mentioned the self-organizing dynamics of the universe. My question again is, why? Why is creativity incessant and pervasive throughout space and time? And why are there these self-organizing dynamics of the universe? And if that is the way it is, how can somebody possibly say that, well, here's Jason again, poor Jason, He said the conditions here were just accidentally right. Considering the trillions of galaxies, the mathematical probability just happened to click on our planet. And my hunch is that all these rock-like planets that you mentioned throughout our galaxy and the equivalent numbers of them in other galaxies are pretty much all of them involved in some stage of the evolution of life or pre-evolution of life. It'll come in time if the conditions are right. I happen to think that life is prolific throughout the universe, but I have no way of proving that. But when I read things like you say here about creativity, incessant and pervasive throughout space and time and self-organizing dynamics, I think it's got to be that way. Maybe you can elaborate on that and explain how as a scientist you can assert these things. Yeah. 
again, I'd go back to it on a personal level. For me personally, the self-organizing dynamics, that really, <laughs> that changed me deeply. You know, I was just a standard modern scientist in thinking of matter as being just sort of inert would be the word I would use. It's just sort of there. And then the, the great mystery was, well, how did life come about? But the great figure here is Ilya Prigogine. I met him. Yeah, he was at some symposium in Switzerland that I was at. I mean, I didn't meet him personally. I was there in the small audience. I think he is the one that really is the, the transition of modern science from this idea of matter being inert to matter being self-organizing. And just to describe it for those who haven't reflected on Prigogine, basically what he did was just imagine having a little beaker you know, and you have chemicals in it. And it's a placid liquid. You're just looking at it, nothing's happening. And then all of a sudden, it starts to spiral out, like a little spiraling motion. And it's sort of like, well, where did that come from? Almost like some creatures were there. And then it stops. And then it's all over, all over. Then it starts again. And it starts spiraling out. And this is referred to as the chemical clock. Now, try to imagine that we're talking about many, many trillions of trillions and trillions of molecules. Who's there organizing all of them? If we think of a molecule as being like a billiard ball, it's bouncing against other billiard balls. There's no way you could get that kind of coherent activity. So what happened was uh, I was at a conference. And I got into a, an elevator going up to the where the talk was. And there was a chemist in there holding one of these. <laughs> and uh, we're talking about so forth. He says, you know what this is? It's a living being. The whole is also able to organize things. Now, I don't think it was a living being. But it, it suddenly showed me very, very clearly how matter has this intrinsic property of self-organization. You take matter, it's so obvious. You take a cloud of matter, you, you put it together, and all of a sudden it starts to move. And then it creates a star. And the stars create the carbon, the phosphorus, the nitrogen. The whole thing, all right, is being orchestrated by the matter itself. Somehow or another, there's this potentiality that's ignited. And um, is it by the matter or is it something even more fundamental than the matter that orchestrates the matter? Again, some field of intelligence that the matter resides in in some way that organizes it. That would be what Henri Bergson thought. He had this idea of, of Elan Vital. It was like another, like a spirit or something. I like Teilhard's view about the idea of spirit. For Teilhard, a spirit showed itself in creative synthesis so that it isn't something outside of matter. It is what matter manifests. So I guess the problem with even using the word matter, still in modern English, we hear the word matter and then we hear another word mind. In other words, that's something different. And Teilhard was driving home the point 
is trying to drive home the point that matter intrinsic to itself is the potential for creative synthesis. I guess I'm not trying to convince anyone. I, I was just talking about my switch. So my switch was, wow, this stuff has a mind of its own. I mean, that way I'd be thinking about it. And you see, this is what led to that phrase you quoted earlier on. Take a bunch of hydrogen atoms, bring them together, and you've got box music. Yeah, it's the 800-pound gorilla in the whole discussion. Like you said, if it's just billiard balls banging into each other, how does all this happen? To me, that's such a glaringly important question. And I feel like you know a lot of people just ignore it or don't feel like it's in their bailiwick to consider it. Or just ask for one miracle. Just yeah, give yeah. One miracle. grant us the miracle. <laughs> <laughs> and when you're saying matter, is matter really that mattery anymore in, in scientific understanding? I mean, well, that's isn't it I... all just probability waves or something or other? Well, I was trying to get at that. This is another example of, of what the kind of development we need, spiritual development, that we have this, I have this default position of thinking of matter as being inert. And yet it's, it's an excited state. It's a flashing. It's an energetic transaction. It's, it's way more alive in our thinking now than it was during most of modern science. Okay, let's do another two hours. <laughs> We're just getting started here. But um, I, this is probably a, a relatively good stopping point. Is there anything that you feel like you would like to have said that you haven't had a chance to say? Anything that you want to say about the Human Energy Project? We've taken a stab at a whole lot of interesting ideas, each of which could blossom into a whole interview or a whole conference. I think we've covered some interesting ground. But is there anything else that you want to add before we wrap it up? Yeah, I'd like to end with this. Where did you meet Irene? I met Irene in Switzerland. Actually, we originally met in Santa Barbara, but I didn't really remember it. But she was with a couple of friends. I knew one of the people and we were talking in a little group. And she told me later that she thought I had a nice face or something. And then... How uh, old were you? Oh, No, Irene didn't think I had a nice face. Her friend Linda (laughs) thought I did. (laughs) And... How old was I then? Maybe 22, 21. Then later in Belgium, 1973, so I would have been 23, I was up on a microphone shooting my mouth off, and Irene said, oh, there's that guy, but he seems kind of egotistical. (laughs) (laughs) And then a few years later in Switzerland, I heard that this girl was going to show up and join international staff, which I was already on, the TM movement international staff, and my antenna kind of perked up, and I happened to be there when she arrived, and... uh, helped her with her bags and so on. But I was hell-bent on being a, a brahmachari because it was being advocated, you know, being a monk. And so that set up a 12-year struggle after which we finally got married. <laughs> and that was like 35 years ago. So it was a long story uh, that's, short. That's a great story. <laughs> well, I just wanted to say my last thing would be, I just really admire what you've done and what you are doing. I just think it's an example of of the noosphere really coming alive in a deep way. It's just a delight talking with you, Rick. You're so highly skilled at the conversation. It's, it's a lost art. But well, you, thanks, Brian. You, and I, I really yeah. appreciate that coming from you. I've had a fantastic week listening to so many hours of your other talks. I mean, you really, you get my neurons firing. 
So I hope we have another one of these conversations and uh, perhaps even in person. That would be really great. Yeah, we can hope for that. Where are you these days? Are you in California still? Washington. Oh, you're back up in in, Washington. Okay. In California. Back and forth. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's a story in your book, Cosmogenesis. People have to read it about this crazy round trip you did from Tacoma down to, to Berkeley and to, to attend some talk and meet some guy and then back to Tacoma in order to teach a class. I, I don't know how you did it. And then you I wrote was a like book the, in the, two the, days on caffeine. That, you, you wrote, but that was like, I was the Brahmachara wannabe as well. Right. Am I saying it right? Yeah. Yeah. Good enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you had a lot of, um, more strength than I did when you were a young man in terms of doing these incredible all-nighters and being productive in the midst of it. I think about those days. Yeah, Yeah. definitely. We're the same age. Yeah, we are. Those were fun days. They were. But these are great days too. They are. Reminds me of a song, but I can't think of it now. Anyway, Joni Mitchell or somebody. So great. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, And really appreciate the time we spent. Thanks, Irene. Brian says thanks, Irene. She says, thank you. And we'll be in touch. Great. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye.